Managing your business through crisis requires agility, fortitude, and above all else, leadership. Today on the Financial Operating Base, we speak with Scott Maitland, U.S. Army veteran and proprietor of Top of the Hill Restaurant and Brewery and Topo Distillery on how he is working through the current COVID-19 crisis. Welcome to the Financial Operating Base, a podcast and community to help you, the veteran entrepreneur, to navigate the terrain and accomplish your mission of business success. And joining us today is Scott Maitland, the proprietor of Top of the Hill Restaurant and Brewery. Scott, thanks for joining us today. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Well, let's jump right into your background and your journey. Tell us about uh, your time in the Army and then kind of what you've done since then in the world of entrepreneurship. Sure. My name's, again, Scott Maitland, and I'm uh, West Point class of 88. No task too great. Um, and uh, I was in the, the first Gulf War, and I spent the entire war uh, trying to get my soldiers and I desert storm boots because we were combat engineers and we needed to run through minefields with magnetic fuses and having jungle boots with steel shanks in it was not good to health. And I was unable to get desert storm boots for my, my unit the entire war. And as we were out processing coming back home, the second to last station was the desert storm boot issue point. And uh, I refused to take it because I was pissed off that I was getting it on the way back home. And uh, it started off arguing with an E5 and then an E8 and then an O3 and finally an O6 who threatened to court-martial me. And I just said, hey, listen, I would be happy to go on any court-martial and talk about how you all were unable to get me freaking boots. So stick it up your, you know what? And I got on the, the plane, never thinking about leaving the army at that point. But I was so pissed off that if you remember, or if you know, back then they were begging officers to leave. And I was so pissed off that I decided the army was all screwed up. And I never wanted to have somebody stupider than me be in charge of me again. And so I outprocessed. In retrospect, I realized the army is better than any other large organization dealing with large organization problems. And, and, uh, uh, my respect for it has continued to grow over the years, and obviously my my classmates and 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 everyone else have done an incredible job. So in any event, the point was is that I left the army with the firm conviction never to let somebody stupider than me be in charge of me again. And so I wanted to be a small business person. I was stationed out of hood. I had a chance to talk to a variety of entrepreneurs that were orbiting around Michael Dell uh, during that time frame in Austin, and. Uh, I got a lot of the same advice, which is if you were serious about going to being your own small business person, go to law school, not business school. So I knew I wanted to live in the South. I'm originally from Southern California, but I applied to law schools in the South and I was lucky enough to get a full scholarship here at UNC Chapel Hill. And so I took it. And in my second year in law school, um, they tried to put, or they discussed putting a TGI Fridays in the main intersection of downtown Chapel Hill. I didn't want to see that happen. And although I had no restaurant experience and no money, I um, created the idea for Top of the Hill Restaurant Brewery. 
and was able to get that open the year after I graduated from law school. I, I dedicated my third year of law school to raising the money and, and doing all of that. So opened up Top of the Hill Restaurant and Brewery, North Carolina's uh, fifth oldest uh, brew pub, eighth oldest brewery. There's now 350 breweries. Um, and then in 2005, I had the idea to start a locally sourced organic distillery. Uh, that's a long story in and of itself, but I didn't get that open because I was delayed by the town for about four years. I didn't get that open until 2010, but uh, we've been running uh, Topo Organic Spirits out of downtown Chapel Hill since then. Hey, Scott, it's Joe. Um, talk a little bit more about the organic spirits. The, the thing that struck me that I think is very interesting for an entrepreneur is you actually repurposed a building that was in, let's just say, sort of a dinosaur or dying industry. And yep. you were able to then move that forward into a new industry. Discuss that a little bit. Sure. Well, so what Joe's referring to is, or what you're referring to, Joe, is, is that in, uh, I was going to be opening my distillery in 2008. And if you remember, that's when the Great Recession was starting. And uh, I was going to be north of town and in sort of an industrial complex. It wasn't the world's best situation. And all of a sudden, the local newspaper that was owned by, um, oh man, I'm, I'm spazzing, not Gannett. Um, anyways, um, the local newspaper building was coming for sale. And uh, because obviously the newspaper industry was suffering. And so I was able to purchase the, um, the, um, uh, the Chapel Hill News building and repurpose that uh, to make to be a distillery. And uh, it was great because normally the people that could buy this building couldn't buy it in the 2008, 2009 timeframe because of the clamp down on buying stuff to build housing. And so um, the building itself was a little bit strange because it had this huge area dedicated to printing presses and nobody could really understand what to do with sort of this white elephant building unless they just tore it down. But it was the perfect thing to put a distillery in. And so we were able to acquire that. And in alluding to what I started off with, um, the, the issue was the town originally told me that there would be no problem in terms of, um, of uh, starting a distillery inside the, uh, the old printing press area because believe it or not, printing press ink and liquor are the same level of flammability. And so uh, the town told me there'd be no problem. And McClatchy was the company I was dealing with. McClatchy, um, it ended up taking me 19 months. I, I, I made the decision to buy the building and move the distillery into it. I figured it would delay the project six months. It delayed it four and a half years because McClatchy, dealing with all of the issues they were dealing with, it took 19 months to close the sale with them and then in that 19 months, the original inspector that said there'd be no problem retired. The new inspector said, no way, you can't do it. And I had to spend three and a half years or three years rewriting the fire code of the town of Chapel Hill in order to allow a distillery to exist in this building. So um, it's very cool to be downtown. It's really fun. My restaurant is on one side of downtown and the distillery's on the other, uh, four blocks away. Um, and it's been a lot of fun, but boy, it's been, it's, you know, this project has been 
a difficult one set in difficult circumstances from the very beginning. And the irony was I was literally supposed, I was under contract to sell the building today, April 1st. And so I hope this is an evergreen, but um, we were supposed to actually close on the sale of the building today. And of course, COVID has come through. I was 11 days away from selling this building when the deal fell apart. And uh, so guess what? I'm still the owner of this building. So, uh, uh, and we've reoriented our entire distilling process into making hand sanitizer to deal with the COVID problem. Yeah, and, and at the time that we're recording this, we're right in the thick of the um, coronavirus and, and COVID-19 problem. Um, and one thing I notice about your, your story there and your journey, particularly as it relates to this distillery, is an unshakable determination to solve the problem. So I think part of the plight of the entrepreneur is, you know, problems arise that are unexpected and you know, it's kind of a roadblock after roadblock after roadblock, but often roadblock turns into opportunity and you've shown that. Um, so first, what advice would you give to someone that faces those type of roadblocks? Because even just hearing six months turns into four years um, seems challenging enough. Well, you know, zooming the lens back a little bit and, you know, I get asked to give advice to veterans that want to be thinking about becoming entrepreneurs. A lot of times I get feedback from veterans saying, well, you know, I think I'd like to start my own business, but I don't have any of the skills. And I tell them, no, you're completely wrong. I said, what, what do we do in the military? What we do in the military is we take teams of people and we accomplish difficult missions. And at the heart of that, if that's not entrepreneurship, I don't know what is. And so, you know, yeah, okay, maybe you don't know accounting or maybe you don't know whatever. But I think that that grit and determination that for the most part I feel is, is you know, pretty um, present in active duty and veterans, um, you know, that grit and determination to get things done is going to serve you well. And, and uh, you know, uh, you just got to stay flexible. And, and, you know, it's like um, Dwight Eisenhower said. You know, I, uh, when it comes to battle, I find plans are useless, but the planning process is, you know, I don't know, I can't remember the term you used. Planning process is, is, uh, is absolutely essential, right? And, and, or invaluable, that's what he said. And so the point is, I think that that's the way to look at it. You just got to be flexible and you got to, you know, no, no plan survives contact with the enemy. And so you just got to get used to that idea, the same thing in business, that we're going to continue to to uh, think of new ways to, to accomplish the actual mission. You bring up a great point with your longevity. You were talking about um, going through the 2008-2009 period, uh, the, the Great Recession. Um, talk about your experience running the brew pub um, and other tough economic times you've gone through. And then especially based on your experience, have you been proactive in taking care of your people and uh, making adjustments um, because a lot of these quarantines and shutdowns and it's effect sure. on the restaurant business? Sure. So what's interesting in the, the, the story of the Top of the Hill arc, so we, we start Top of the Hill in 96, September 96, which believe it or not was the day of Hurricane Fran for us. So from literally the first day, 
we were dealing with emergency situations and uh, we were the only restaurants, we were the only restaurant beside a subway that was open for business in Chapel Hill for the first four days after the hurricane. So um, it's like from the very beginning, this organization's had to deal with a lot of unknown and, and, and just kind of power through. Uh, at one point, my chef said uh, we needed to be closed because we don't have any water. And I said, bullshit. I said, we can, we can boil the water that's in the brewery and use that to clean the, um, the actual um, dishes. And we used a batch of beer that you're not supposed to sell the first batch of beer you make in a brewery. We used a batch of beer to flush the toilets, right? So I finally told the chef that wasn't military. I finally looked at him and said, hey, man, we're going to be open and we're going to do this. So your choice is, you know, effectively resign and stay home or get on the freaking program and figure out ways to solve problems instead of ways to succumb to them. So from the very beginning, we, we, we cut our teeth on that. I think, the, you know, we became rather successful in, in the, um, you know, late 90s, early 2000s, and ran that success all the way through until the Great Recession. Um, and then 2010, I mean, I always tell people that, that you know, 08 is when the Great Recession hit Wall Street, 09 is when it hit Main Street, 10 is when it hit Chapel Hill, because Chapel Hill being a university town, a little bit more, less susceptible. But in, I will give you <laughs> this stat, in nine, going from December of nine into January of 10, my late night drinking sales dropped 75%. Because I think what happened was kids went home for Christmas in 09, and mom and dad said, listen, this is no joke. Our house is underwater. Our IRA is depleted. You know, you guys have got to rein it in. And boy, they did. And so the problem for me was in January of 10, we finished doubling the size of the top of the hill, creating an event space, another bar, et cetera. So frankly, um, and that's when the distillery opened up too. So, you know, we opened up during these really, really hard times. And it's really wild to me because I, you know, again, I was 11 days away from selling this building and getting a, um, you know, getting a pretty good payout. And it's just ironic to me because it just feels like it did when we first opened, which is we have had from the very beginning to have to deal with, you know, sales dropping immediately. Um, and so think about it. We double the size of our restaurant and brewery and create event space. And the reason why we created the event space was that companies were coming to us, begging us for space that they could use to do uh, recruiting for employees off of the UNC campus. So we create this entire event space and open it basically the month that all of companies in the United States stop hiring for five years. And so, uh, you know, we had to tap dance our way through a lot of things. We're used to running really lean. We're used to robbing Peter to pay Paul and figuring out ways to move forward. And so in as much as psychologically it was devastating, I let myself have a pity party for about an hour. Um, but you know, realized that uh, I needed to accept the fact that I'm really dead man walking, that effectively my restaurant, I mean, everything I built in my adult life has, you know, effectively gone. Um, stop worrying about that and figure out how to salvage what you got. And so, um, 
you know, we've been just staying positive and, and so we have uh, started a curbside pickup of beer and liquor from our distillery. We have rotated the hand sanitizer and we're, we're selling hand sanitizer like nobody's business. And we're just figuring out a way to move forward. And, and I think my organization is, is just kind of used to, to accomplishing difficult missions. I don't know how else to say it. Pretty amazing uh, to see uh, your, your problem solving in action. So tell us about the hand sanitizer, because not only is that a tremendous opportunity for you to um, salvage or perhaps um, even thrive um, in this environment that we all find ourselves in, but it's also providing a pretty valuable service or commodity um, given the current situation that we all find ourselves in. Yeah, well, so, um, so I don't think we'll ever thrive at this because uh, the cost, you know, <laughs> you know, I'm a locally sourced organic distillery. So locally sourced organic hand sanitizer ain't the cheapest, right? Um, normally hand sanitizer is a function of um, rectification of, of crude in the gasoline. So it's really cheap. Um, and so instead of using isopropyl, which comes from gasoline, we're using ethanol, which we create by fermenting grain or fruit and turning into you know, something we can drink. We can repurpose that ethanol into hand sanitizer but there's limits to what we can charge. And so the reality is, is that, that um, you know, selling it as, vo as vodka or whiskey is a hell of a lot more valuable than selling it as hand sanitizer. But the reality is, is that we've got a real crisis here. And so, um, you know, I don't think anybody on the team um, hesitated at all for us to think about, okay, we need to get in the sanitizer business. Um, because clearly, you know, we've got, you know, in UNC, well, we have the state hospital here in Chapel Hill. So, you know, so many of my team's spouses work in the, in the hospital or work in the labs that are researching COVID, et cetera. So we kind of understood the import of the problem from jump. Um, you know, it's been frustrating to me. I would like to think that perhaps this this whole event will be a reboot on the political discussion in our nation i'm not so sure i'm thinking people are even cementing themselves in their opinions but what i will say is is that the flexibility and agility of the private sector is the thing that's really amazing to me and what's wild is is that it, the fda has still not officially approved distilleries making hand sanitizer they preliminarily approved it and i'm like well what in the world has taken so long? We, we have a World Health Organization recipe. Everyone knows the science. Everyone knows what's going on. What are you guys doing? It should have taken a half an hour to say, yeah, let's let distilleries make hand sanitizer and go from there. But it wasn't until Thursday before last. So what would that be? I mean, I can pull up my, uh, I can pull up my, my calendar here. And I want to say it was, uh, so it wasn't until the, 19th of March that the TTB said that they would not prosecute people that were using alcohol to make hand sanitizer, right? And the FDA still hasn't approved it officially and it's April 1st. So anyways, we, there were some distilleries that started doing it right off the bat. 
I was a little concerned about that. As soon as the TTB said they're not going to prosecute people that are doing it, I said, let's fire this thing up and get going. Um, and so, um, you know, the science is clear. The need is, you know, ethically paramount. And I, and I think that ultimately that's the way I navigated these things is that I thought of the ethics of the situation. And the reality is, is that preventing people from dying and helping our first responders stay in the game uh, and stopping the spread was far more important than whether or not we're getting official word that we can do it, right? And we are confident in the, the, the science behind what we do. And, and that's one of the things that people don't understand, that we're, we're scientists and engineers here at our distillery. We're not, you know, we're not dudes getting high in the backyard deciding we're gonna make some beer, right? I mean, it's just, that's, you know, so anyways, that's, I don't know if that answers the question, but uh, um, it, the economics of it, that's one of the things that I was working on with my, with my assistant distiller right now. We're trying to, to cut down the cost of making this, but the reality is, is that there's a built-in cost making ethanol at the scale that we make it. And uh, I don't know if we can get much cheaper than what we've got right now. So I think the one thing you, you learn in business, obviously, and it's been part of the theme of what we discussed today is, is adapting and overcoming. Um, you know, you certainly, you've been through 01, you've been through 08 to 10, and, and you're going through this now. Um, you know, it can look dark, but, um, you know, you're such an iconic presence in Chapel Hill, and I think you're a well-known <laughs> entrepreneur throughout the state and beyond. Um, what, what's your, what's your, view of the future if you have one what what are you putting in place so that when we all do get past this how are you going to thrive and, and and how are you going to take care of your people and the people of chapel hill well so currently you know from the jump i think that we realized we needed to take a lifeboat strategy and so i think a day or two before the rest of North Carolina realized it, we called our staff together and said, this is gonna be really, really bad. We need to move everybody to half pay because the other option is, is I lay people off. And I decided that, you know, that, that servant leadership mentality that we develop in the service, I think is what informs my leadership and my organization's leadership. And so we decided that the number one thing was let's figure out a way to minimize disruption to our team. Um, and ultimately with the goal of keeping our organizations alive. Um, and so we were out in front in terms of asking people to cut back the situation evolved quickly. And we, and we decided that we needed to furlough everybody and then bring them back in as needed. Um, so that's what we did. Um, the, um, <clears throat> you know, trying to minimize that disruption and keeping the team together, navigating the, the assistance programs that, that are available uh, and, and trying to maximize that. You know, the problem for us is, is that we're mandated to be closed as a restaurant and brewery. We don't know when we can reopen. We don't know what the climate's going to be like when we reopen are people going to want to come out to restaurants and bars and stuff right so so we there's still a lot more uncertainty and i think that we need to continue to hunker down 
and and really take a hard look at that. You know, we also tried to apply some ingenuity to this. And so when I started Top of the Hill originally, uh, my landlord, who, you know, for obvious reasons, looked at a guy with no money and no experience um, a little sideways, challenged me to prove that my idea was going to be successful um, on his location. And so the idea I came up with was the Founders Club idea. And I convinced 523 people to give me between $100 and $1,000. And whatever they gave me, I doubled that amount in terms of house credit. I put their name on the wall. And I gave them a t-shirt. It doesn't seem like great shakes now. That's kind of like a Groupon deal. But 25 years ago, that was pretty innovative. And so we, over the years, have had lots of people ask, well, how can I get my name on the wall? And my general manager, Guy Murphy, and I were talking over the last couple of months of thinking what we were going to do to celebrate our 25th year in business. And we had talked about the idea of reinstigating the Founders Club. And so we decided that in light of COVID, we needed to fire up the Founders Club 2.0 immediately. And that would help us raise the money that we could use to make sure that we could navigate this with our team intact and, and stay there. And so I got to tell you, it's been really heartwarming to me. Uh, it took me seven months to sell $75,000 worth of Founders Club memberships when I first opened. At four days now, we're over $95,000. Uh, we've got, I want to, I mean, we're, they keep rolling in about one every two minutes. And so I think we've got 750, um, 750 members right now and we're going to obviously be using this money in conjunction with the federal money that we can get to navigate it but what i like about the founders club 2.0 is while there's clearly a charitable aspect to it nobody's giving this money to us um, without understanding the current covid crisis what i like about it is, is we're not coming out to them with our hat in our hand. You know what I mean? It's like, hey, here's something fun we can do to lay the groundwork so when we do get open, we're all celebrating this together. And uh, I'm hoping that the lasting legacy of all of this is going to be a re-understanding and a reaffirmation of the need of human connection. Because frankly, as a restaurateur, I saw people getting lost in digital space uh, and, you know, and not coming out anymore, you know, uh, college kids, instead of meeting their friends for a drink at a bar are meeting online, playing a video game, you know, instead of meeting a romantic partner at the restaurant or bar, you're going to meet them on Tinder, right? I'm hoping that all of this is going to reset all of that. And people are going to realize that face-to-face -face, real human connection is important. And I feel like creating this new Founders Club 2.0 community is gonna help us uh, create a customer base that should come out with a bang once we reopen. Now, that's a long-winded answer, but I hope that makes sense. No, Scott, I think you're hitting on, you know, the exact reason, um, you know, why you're in business. It's, it's a people business, it's a service business, and you're both serving not only your customers, um, you're serving your team as a servant leader, um, which I think is fantastic. Um, I've been to top of the hill. Um, I, I, I proudly sent in my founders club 2.0 money. So it's S R O K a, when you put it up on the wall there, I know um, that big boy. <laughs> and, 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 no, no, and, 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 
um, you, you do a great job and, uh, and I'm glad everyone's supporting you. I think that's great for you and the team. Um, you know, maybe kind of last big picture question. We talked a little bit about this as far as advice for entrepreneurs. Um, you know, maybe when the entrepreneur is making that hard decision, you know, is my business going to be successful or not? Should I pivot? Should I fold and do something else? Should I go back and work for the government? Whatever it's going to be. Um, when they're kind of staring into the abyss, what would you tell them? Yeah, well, you know, that's interesting. Because I teach entrepreneurship at UNC, and, and, and one of the things that I've reflected on over these last 10 years is that, that if you had asked me prior to the Great Recession, frankly, I would have been quite kind of a jerk and kind of said, oh, I got this figured out. And the Great Recession was a big wake-up call to me. And I realized that uh, uh, the more I know, the less I know, you know? And, and so uh, one of the things we don't discuss is when do you give it up, right? Because the, the common thing is, hey, stick with it, stick with it, stick with it. Um, I will tell you that um, the goal or the role of the entrepreneur is to not create a product or create a company. What we do is we create a business model. And so my challenge to people would, would be, hey, you know, stick with it as long as you can continue to iterate and change your model so you feel like there's an opportunity for you to actually make something. But just, you know, beating your head on the wall, using the same model over and over and over again, thinking that something's going to change, uh, I think that that's when you got to realize, all right, maybe I need to give up the ship. Right. And it's funny because uh, the distillery was very uh, has not been the, a moneymaker for us. And uh, at one point I was being told, well, you need to raise more money. You need, need to raise more money. And I'm like, you know, I got no problems raising the money, but I don't understand how I would spend the money. You know, I had no good idea how to spend the money. And so, I mean, I think that that's it. But that if you can keep coming up with new ideas, if you can keep iterating that business model, then stick with it. But you know what? It's um, it's okay to 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 go in there and 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 say you know what we're we're done, and and it's funny because uh, early in the distillery's life, and again we can get wrapped up in the whole discussion about North Carolina ABC laws and all of that. Um, let's just sum it all up to say that that um, when I first looked at doing a distillery in North Carolina, I was told not to do a distillery in North Carolina because we're a control state. But my research showed that small distilleries in control states were doing better than distilleries in free states. And if you don't know, a control state is where the government controls the sale of the liquor. Well, my research showed that distilleries were doing better in control states. My mistake was, was that I assumed that our version of control was the same as Pennsylvania, Ohio, Virginia. And it turns out that North Carolina was an outlier in terms of how it does its control. So Whereas the states got behind small distilleries in places like Virginia, Pennsylvania, and Ohio, and North Carolina, the system was set up so that the state really didn't have any control over the system. They franchised it out to counties, and the counties could care less about statewide issues. And so it was very hard, very difficult. And I found myself facing bankruptcy with the distillery very early in the process, and I was obviously upset about that. But I finally realized, you know, you seem to be even more upset than you should be about this. 
what's the problem? And as I reflected on that, I realized that I was worried about how I was going to explain my failure to my kids, that, that this was the thing. How, how do I explain the fact that I failed to my children? And so um, I seized upon Teddy Roosevelt's Man in the Arena. And, and, and honestly, when I say I seized upon it, I, I just came across it. It was one of those things where sometimes you feel like the universe just helps you. And, I, and of course, I'd seen the quote before, but I never really thought about it. And I just bumped into it. And if you don't know, it's an excerpt of a speech he actually made in Europe when um, uh, he was running for president again under the Bull Moose Party. But it's the one that says, it's not the critic who counts, not the man who points out how the strong man stumbles or where the doer of deeds could have done them better. The credit belongs to the man who's actually in the arena. Right? And it goes on and on and on. But, but this is the part that I love. It says, who at the best knows in the end the triumph of high achievement? And who at the worst, if he fails, at least fails while daring greatly, so this place shall never be with those cold and timid souls who neither know victory nor defeat. And I said to myself, you know, that's what I'm going to tell my kids, that, that you know, I had this idea for this thing, and I thought it was really cool, and, and if I didn't do it, I would have kicked myself in the butt for the rest of my life for not doing it. And I guess that's what I would say to people. People are afraid of failing, uh, and, and, and that fear is so great, it prevents them from trying. And I don't think there is a fear to failure. I mean, you can be stupid about failing. You can be an idiot and just press on when you have no advantage and no good plan. But I think the reality is that fear of failure in and of itself should not be a reason to stop you because, you know, in as much as that, hey, I've never made money with this distillery. My God, it's been one hell of a ride. And it's, it's, it's you know, I, I think the way I look at it is when I'm, when I'm faced with a question about whether I should do something or not, I ask myself, 10 years down the road, will I regret not having done this? And I think that if I had never done the distillery, I would have regretted the idea of doing it. I would have been kicking myself in the butt, even though it didn't work out the way I wanted it to. Um, you know, and so, and then the wild part is with the sanitizer thing going on now, you know, who knows what, what, what goes on? The, the sale of my building has collapsed. Uh, I'm going to have to figure that out, but there may be a resurgence and, and, you know, staying flexible and agile, there might be some opportunities to come our way. And what a great uh, way to wrap it up. And this has been tremendous. Um, last question for you. It, for someone that's listening that is just blown away or, you know, maybe wants to reach out to learn more, maybe wants to reach out to help um, what you're doing, what's a good way for someone to get in contact with you? Well, you know, they can find me on Facebook or LinkedIn, but they can also reach out directly at Scott at Topo Distillery. That's T-O-P-O distillery.com. Um, Tango, Oscar, Papa, Oscar, distillery.com. Uh, or they can reach me at scott at thetopofthehill.com. Um, but yeah, and, and by the way, if there's somebody out there that, that has a company that's looking for hand sanitizer, um, they, they come to Chapel Hill a lot for whatever reason, they want to buy a Founders Club membership, whatever, uh, please reach out. We could use the support. Absolutely, Scott. Um, we appreciate you coming on today. We're, we're proud of you and your business and 
um, the perseverance you've shown through not just the current crisis, but several economic crises in the past um, really says something about, you know, your abilities and your uh, perseverance as an entrepreneur. Thank you. Yeah. It's called um, swimming like hell to stay alive. <laughs> <laughs> well, sometimes we, we look for the magic bullet um, and sometimes we got to swim like hell to stay alive. So thanks for joining us today. Hey, thank you guys. I appreciate it. And we leave you today with a quote from Rudy Giuliani. It is in times of crisis that good leaders emerge. Thanks for joining us on the Financial Operating Base podcast. We'd love to hear from you, so send us your questions or feedback to financialoperatingbase at gmail.com.